beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We then move on to John chapter 1, starting at verse 1, which can be found on page 1063 of the Church Bibles. That's John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. second reading is Psalm 19, which can be found on page 552. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out unto all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the others. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect refreshing to the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the law are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. So during the interregnum, we are going to be hearing from a wider range of speakers and preachers than usual, both from within the church and um, from visiting guests. This morning, um, we continue our series in the Psalms, and it's a delight to um, hear from one of our own this morning. John Cameron is a long-standing member of St. Michael's, but um, most usually to be found in the evening service, so some of you here might not know him. Um, John is a lawyer by trade, but in terms of his training, I believe many other things besides, um, including, I think, theologian. But he's not here to give a lecture. He is here as a brother. Um, to encourage and exhort us. So, please, John. 
Thank you, ML, and good morning. And thank you also to uh, Lucy and uh, Matthew for reading for us. Well, those of you who are eagle-eyed or have paid attention to the, to the service sheet will see that the title for this morning's um, sermon, the title that I was given, is The Law of the Lord is Perfect. Now, to say, I think, that the law of the Lord is perfect is an adequate summary of this psalm, is a little bit like saying that the palace of Versailles is a house. Now, don't get me wrong, the law of the Lord is perfect. But if that is all we focus on, we will miss the glory and wonder and beauty and intimacy of this psalm. As we'll see, there is profound truth. There is deep doctrine in this psalm. But it's not given to us as dry and uh, sort of propositional bullet points. There's no bullet point theology here. Rather, Psalm 19 teaches us about God and his glory by making us look and feel and fear and trust. Psalm 19 engages every part of us, our minds, our wills, and our spirits. And so if I do my job properly this morning, if I do my job well, we will all go home singing. Well, with that challenge, let me pray. (laughs) And in those wonderful words of Psalm 19, O Lord, may these words of my mouth And this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Please do keep Psalm 19 open. Um, That's page 552 for anyone who's who's closed your Bibles, page 552. Um, We'll begin this morning, though, perhaps slightly unusually, with two two pieces of music. Just a few bars of each. Um, Do beware... It's going to be very loud, and the first begins with quite a crash. So, over to Mark.
Doesn't that just give you goosebumps? Who knows what those pieces of music are? I know there are some people who know what they are because they told me about them, but anyone else? Who, who can tell me what the first one is? Lucy. That may well be right. That's not the piece I had in mind, but yes. Fanfare for the common man. And the second one, it may well have been in Space Odyssey as well. And the second one? Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire. Absolutely. And I chose those pieces, and I, and I think that the, the, the fanfare for the common man is particularly appropriate, because actually, Psalm 19 is a fanfare for Almighty God. But they also demonstrate how this psalm begins. It begins with a crash of timpani, with a blast of the trumpets, with resounding cymbals. Look at those words. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Or maybe better, a better translation might be the heavens are declaring the glory of God. This is not a statement of general fact that is being made at the beginning of Psalm 19, but this is a description of current events. Right now, right this very minute, for those who have ears to hear, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the skies are proclaiming his handiwork. Well, how do we hear them? And what are they saying? Well, those are important questions, and we will return to them. But first I want to pause on verse 1. It would be very easy to skip over it. But verse 1 is foundational to to the psalm, and the truths it contains are foundational to our faith. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. You see, in this verse, we are confronted with the unavoidable claim that we live in a theistic universe, that we live in a universe in which there is a God. At this stage in Psalm 19, we don't know who that God is, more on that later, but we do know that there is a God. Psalm 19, verse 1, we hear the echo back to Genesis 1, verse 1 which Lucy read for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we hear the seeds of John 1, uh, 1 to 5, those first couple of verses again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Psalm 19, like Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and like John's Gospel, where creation is retold in the New Testament, begins with the claim that God is creator. So let me ask us all, do we believe that? Do you believe that God is creator? Do I? As we know, it is a claim that stands in complete contradiction to the secular and materialistic worldview that surrounds us. It is a claim that the world finds ridiculous, the subject of jokes. And I think it's important at this stage for us also to recognize the cost of believing that God is creator. 
Because for us in our human nature, believing that God is creator is costly. It's even offensive. Just as a thought, what do you think is the most offensive verse in the Bible? Some people might say bits of Leviticus or maybe some of those Psalms where David prays that God would destroy his enemies. Or maybe bits of the New Testament, Paul's teaching on the differences between men and women. But how about Genesis 1 verse 1? Because if that verse is not true, no other verse in the Bible could possibly be offensive. You see, if God is creator, I am not. If God is creator, I am a creature. And I am not, despite what that 19th century poem Invictus may say, I am not the master of my fate. I am not the captain of my soul. If God is creator, he has the right to do as he pleases and the ability to do as he pleases. If God is creator, he has the right to instruct me how to behave and how to relate to him, whether I like it or not. So do you, will you believe that God is creator, even when it is costly, even when it means that I am finite, even when it means that I must bow my will to his, rather than expecting him to bow to mine. G.K. Chesterton equipped that the problem with Christianity is not so much that it has been tried and found wanting, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. We spend a lot of time on verse 1, and rightly, because we need to see the significance of the claim that it makes about God. But while we focused for now on the cost of believing that God is creator, we will see by the end of the psalm that God as creator is also the source of our greatest comfort and peace. Well, with that preamble, the rest of the psalm, rest of Psalm 19, falls rather neatly into three sections. And if you want headings, um, or if you're taking notes, here they are. Number one, God is glorious in creation. That's verses one to six. Uh, number two, God is glorious in revelation. That's verses seven to 11. And number three, God is glorious in redemption. That's verses 12 to 14. And as we move through those three sections, I'd like you um, to watch as two themes develop. I'll flag them as we go. But the first to watch out for is the intimacy, the degree of intimacy, the degree of closeness between God and creation. And the second is the glory of God and what that means and how it is revealed. Okay? So intimacy of God and creation and the glory of God and what it means. So firstly, God is glorious in creation. We've already seen and heard with those pieces of music that the psalm starts with a great crash of glory. The heavens, says David, are declaring the glory of God. Day and night, verse 2, look down, they, are, they pour forth speech and declare knowledge. 
And paradoxically, while they make no sound, verse 3, even so, their voice goes to the end of the world, verse 4. And then we have this wonderful picture of the sun. The sunrise, says David, is exuberant. It's like a bridegroom emerging from his first night with his bride. Or it's like a champion sprinter, or maybe a racehorse, who just can't wait for the starting gun to fire, or the gates to open. Of all the voices of creation that David could have listened to, he turns to the heavens, and to the sun in particular. In these verses, we see that the heavens tell us that there is a God, that he is glorious, that he is vastly powerful, that he is a God of order. Notice how the sun follows a particular circuit. We know when it's going to rise. We know when it will set. God is a God of order, that he reigns supreme over all creation. And it's clear that unlike most pagan religions of the time, David sees God as supreme even over the sun. So much so that God pitches a tent for the sun to dwell in. It's a rather lovely picture, isn't it? God pitching a tent for the sun. Rather like a father might pitch a tent for his little boy or little girl on a camping trip. So what will you see or hear this morning as you leave this building what will you see or hear tomorrow morning as you walk out of your flat or your house we see in nature we see in the heavens something of God's glory even of his care and his provision for creation in the warmth of the sun and we see something of the sheer joy and exuberance with which God creates But, if you remember those two themes, that glory is not yet specific. We know it's big, we know it's wonderful, but we don't know yet much about God's character. And secondly, God is as yet distant, he's unidentified. We see little intimacy between God and creation. Well, having meditated on God's glory as revealed in creation, David turns, apparently quite abruptly, so abruptly that some commentators think these were two different psalms which were stuck together, but as I think we'll see, that that is not the case. David turns to the law, which is that second section of Psalm 19. Uh, So those of you who are keeping notes, this is point two. God is glorious in Revelation. Well, you might well be wondering at this point what... The law has to do with revelation and why David seems to be so excited about the law. And those are very good questions. In our everyday lives, we tend to think of laws as restrictions or obligations which are imposed on us uh, by the state, usually. Don't park here. Do pay your tax, that sort of thing. Even in Christian circles, we incorrectly, I think, think of law in opposition to grace. We think of law as somehow being a bad thing and grace as being a good thing. So we pick up on verses like the law brings wrath in Romans 4 or the letter kills in 2 Corinthians 3 
but we misunderstand them. But this opposition between law and grace, or this negative view of law, is not how David sees the law. And so we need to understand why and how David does see the law. There is much we can learn from these uh, few verses. Throughout these, throughout the section, um, verses 7 to 11, um, rather like in the much longer Psalm 119, David meditates on five or six parallel nouns, so nouns or concepts which mean more or less the same thing. So he talks about law and statutes and precepts and commands and fear and decrees. And he sets out the astonishing benefits which they bring. But as with the first section of the psalm, it's worth, I think, pausing again on the first verse of this section. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. There is much gold, there is much to be found buried in this verse. We'll focus on three words. We'll focus on the law, the Lord, and reviving. So, first, the law. The word used here is Torah, which most of you may recognize as as the, the word for the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, known as the Torah. Uh, In those books, in Exodus, we find the Ten Commandments, and we also find most of the ritual and purity laws of of ancient Israel. But the word Torah is much much broader, much more expansive uh, than our word, the law. One of the commentaries I read says this, we need to grasp that here in the Old Testament, law is a wonderfully comprehensive word. And hear this, meaning all that God wants us to know about himself. There is no life for the soul without that. Torah, then, is God's revelation of himself. In the Torah, God tells us what he is like. He tells us his ways. And wonderfully, as a result, he tells us, so that we can know how to please him. Don't turn to it, but we can see the connection between Revelation and the law most clearly in Exodus 20, where uh, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. When we read or study the Ten Commandments, it's easy to miss Exodus 20, verse 2, which comes immediately before the first commandment. God says to Moses in that verse, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And then he goes on, you shall have no gods before me, and so on. So you see the Torah, or the law, and the Ten Commandments, which are the high point of the Torah, are integrally connected with God's revelation of himself to Israel. God reveals himself. He reveals his character and his glory through the law. So that was the law. Secondly, the Lord. The law of the Lord, says David, is perfect, reviving the soul. So here David uses the same word as God uses in Exodus 20, Yahweh, which we see translated when you see those little lower caps in the the translation, you know that, that that is the word Yahweh, the Lord. 
And of course, this is the name that God revealed to Moses when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It's God's choice of name for himself. And ultimately, through the Old Testament, it's the name that God uses for himself in the context of his relationship, his covenant relationship with Israel. So do you see what has happened between the first section of the psalm and this one? The nameless God of Psalm 19, verse 1, where David uses the word El, the most generic Hebrew word for God, a bit like deity. This nameless deity has become, in verse 7, the Lord, Yahweh, who revealed himself through Moses and entered into a covenant relationship with his people. And the third word, reviving or refreshing what the law the Lord does to our souls. And the, the, the word translated reviving here is a word which has a pretty wide range of meaning, but ultimately it, turn, it means to turn back or to return. It's also the word used elsewhere in the Old Testament for repent, turning away from sinful ways and turning back to God. So with that in mind, let's look again at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Which I think we can now paraphrase as the revelation of his ways and character that Yahweh has given us is perfect. It's complete. And it leads our souls to repent and return to him. Now, I think, we can see why David is so excited about the law. The creator is the lawgiver. The creator has not remained aloof, but in astonishing mercy and humility, he has revealed himself to his creation through the law. We don't have time, unfortunately, to look at the rest of those verses in detail, but just glance down and look at what they contain. The law, says David, refreshes or repents our souls. It makes the simple wise. It gives joy to our hearts. It gives light to our eyes. It is more precious than gold, even much fine gold. Note here that, unlike prosperity gospel teaching, David does not say that the law brings wealth, but the law is Wealth. The law is also sweeter than honey, and it provides great reward to those who keep it. That's amazing. So let me ask you, what do you think? What do you think is the good life? What does the good life comprise? What would your neighbors think the good life comprises? What would colleagues think the good life comprises? Well, Greek and Roman philosophers in particular spent a great deal of time and spilt a lot of ink thinking about how we can live a good life, a blessed life, the vita beata, as they called it. Well, in these five verses, we have the answer. We live the richest of all possible lives when we live in accordance with the ways and laws revealed to us 
by our covenant God. Before we move on, do you remember those two themes, intimacy and God's glory? How are we doing on those? Well, on the first, intimacy, we've moved, if you remember, from a deity who is over and above all creation, but is not personally known to Yahweh, who spoke face to face with Moses and entered into a covenant relationship with his people. And on the second, we've moved from God's glory being revealed magnificently but impersonally in nature to seeing his glory revealed in his character and his personal interaction with his people. And so finally, point three, but do try to stay with me because David has saved the best for last. God is glorious in redemption. Let me read those verses. This is um, 12 to 14. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Isn't it fascinating that despite God's general revelation of himself in creation, and despite his specific and personal revelation in the law, David's response is still, who can discern their errors? You see, even with God's law, we need God's help to be holy. Either because we are simply unaware of our sin, or because we are aware of it, and we do it anyway. Do you see those two points in in those verses? Hidden faults and willful sins. Doesn't that ring true? It does for me. It did for Paul as well in Romans 7. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And what about our hidden faults? What about those sinful attitudes and mindsets that much of the time we're not even aware of? When someone pulls out in front of me in the car and I get angry and I shake my fist and I flash my lights and I do whatever else I do, I may well repent afterwards of my anger. But am I even aware of my pride and my selfishness, which drives that anger, which tells me that I am entitled to get my way? More than that, which tells me that God ought to give me my way, that God should bend his will to mine. Because I think that's what's really going on. So friends, knowing the law could never be a solution for our sin. God the creator, who is God the revealer, had to become God the saviour. Take a look at verse 14 again. 
Isn't it wonderful? May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. After that crash of glory in creation and the majesty of God's revelation of himself and the law, David ends the psalm in quiet, unshakable trust in the Lord, his rock and his redeemer. Do you feel that intimacy? Do you feel that silence and peace at the end? The impersonal deity of creation has showed himself to be Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel. But now, even more wonderfully, has become the personal redeemer of David. How much more for us, who can see in Christ what David could not, who can see a God-made man, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life and hung on a cross to die so that he might be David's redeemer and ours. As awesome as it is, God's glory in creation pales in comparison to his glory as Christ gave himself for his people. Yet we can only see, truly, God's glory at the cross if we have already seen his glory in revelation and his glory in creation. We are, all of us, I think, sometimes drawn, if you like, to play a sort of game of Jenga with Christian doctrines. To pull out the ones we don't like and throw them away. But the Bible and its teaching stands or falls as one. It's like a three-legged stool. You can't remove any one of them without the whole thing falling over. And this is why we focused on the creator at the beginning. Only the creator has the right and the ability to be the lawgiver. And only the lawgiver can be the redeemer can redeem those who have broken the law. And only if the Redeemer is also the lawgiver and the creator can that redemption be final and certain. So let us, with David, praise and glorify God that that is so. And that, like David, we can rest in him our rock and our redeemer. Amen.